I can't believe we're already in November. It's crazy, isn't it? In just a few weeks, uh, we're going to have Thanksgiving and then our Christmas coffee and our Christmas season. So that is just so exciting that we have so much to look forward to in the next few weeks. Um, I actually live in a fairly small house. I was looking at Zillow, if you know what Zillow is, that uh, web resource where you can look at the year that homes were made and how much they were purchased for, which is interesting, and um, uh, square footage and things like that. And I noticed that our house uh, is a total of 1,424 total square feet, including the garage, which is relatively small. Uh, it was actually actually built in 1955. The houses, the little track that I live in was a, um, it was originally like little uh, vacation cottages for military personnel. Uh, they would provide this housing for them so that they could get away and, you know, have some time in this neighborhood. But I raised three kids in that house, so with five of us there, I did the math and discovered that we had 284.8 square feet each, including the garage. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, you learn to live with a small amount of space. Uh, when someone goes uh, to bring something in the house, you stop them at the door and you make them bring something out. <laughs> something comes in, something goes out. There's just not a lot of space to store things. And I am very thankful for my house. I, I enjoy it and I enjoy living there. I don't mind the small rooms and the small space. But one thing that uh, became kind of difficult uh, in time was our kitchen was so tiny. Uh, I used to call it Polly Pocket's kitchen. I mean, it, it's, it was literally smaller than most people's bathrooms. And I'm not exaggerating, just so tiny. It was like we had a refrigerator, a stove, and a chair, and that was it in the kitchen. So uh, we decided to remodel, to build out, to add some more space to our kitchen. And I was so excited about that. You know, a new kitchen, and of course we're gonna have to get new appliances, a new oven, new refrigerator, new microwave, new sinks, new faucets. Woohoo, this is gonna be awesome, right? Uh, until it began to be ripped down, and suddenly I realized we have no kitchen at all. And I was in the backyard making meals, uh, trying to use an ice chest. And then finally, uh, we got one of those little refrigerators from Costco that are about two feet by two feet. And, you know, trying to prepare meals out there and make lunches for my kids to go to school and washing dishes in the bathroom sink. And, you know, the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months. It seemed like it was going to take forever. And things were constantly taped off, and I'd peer in there to see if there was any change, and look at my calendar, look at the days, and nobody was showing up again. <laughs> you know, just thinking, what in the world is going on here? And, you know, I could have lost my mind during that time if I didn't realize that we had a master plan. Everything that was being done was being done for a purpose and for a reason, and there was an end goal in all of this. And, you know, we see the same thing 
in 2 Samuel. As we look at 2 Samuel this morning, we're gonna see that if we lose track of the fact that there's a master plan, that there's a big picture in all of this and we get bogged down by our temporary disappointments and inconveniences, we're gonna miss out on the composure, the contentment, even the confidence that God calls us to have as we follow him and focus on his overall plan and grand design in things. So we're going to go through the text of 2 Samuel 7 this morning. So if you could open your Bibles there to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to go through the whole chapter a section at a time. So we're going to work our way through this amazing text, and we're going to begin with 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3 begins like this. Now, when the king lived in his house, and Yahweh had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. Now, at this point, uh, David was finally ruling all over all of Israel. He wasn't just ruling over the southern part in Judah anymore, but he was ruling over the entire nation. And God had given him the city of Jerusalem to be his home and to be the capital for the nation. And we saw in the last chapter in 2 Samuel 6 that after a bump in the road, uh, David was able to joyfully and successfully bring the Ark of the Covenant of God into Jerusalem. This great and grand and glorious symbol of God's presence. And he brought that Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and housed it in the tabernacle or in a tent. And so David was there in his newly built palatial mansion, which had been built for him with strong cedars, strong wood. And he and his friend, the prophet Nathan, may have even been up on the roof of his home looking over all of Jerusalem. And as David was standing there in this palatial mansion, he looked out upon the tabernacle where the tent was, the tent that housed the Ark of the Covenant that was made from curtains. And you know, even if there was a slight wind, you would have seen some movement in the curtains. And David thought, this isn't right. Here I am in this amazing mansion while the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence is in a tent and the curtains are flapping in the wind. And so David said in verse two again, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the Ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan, the prophet, agreed and said, you're so right, David. This doesn't make sense. So Nathan said in verse three, go and do all that is in your heart, 
for Yahweh is with you. But you know, Nathan, although he was a prophet, he didn't really seek God on that response because they figured, he figured, this was a no-brainer, right? Uh, Why should David have this incredible mansion while God's presence be housed in a tent? And even though he thought it was a no-brainer, that night God corrected Nathan's thinking. Let's look at 2 Samuel verse 4. It says, but that same night, the word of Yahweh came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. You see, although what David wanted to do was right, God saw that there was a problem beneath the service. And so God said to David, no, not quite yet. You need to realize, David, that I've been fine dwelling in a tent from the days that my people left Egypt through the period of the judges. As my people have moved around, I have humbled myself and moved around with them. I never asked anybody to build me a house of cedar But even more importantly, he said, David, before you do anything for me, you need to remember that everything you have is a gift from me. Everything you have has been given to you by me, and I don't need anything from you. The first point is, get yourself in perspective. Get yourself in perspective because God was here helping David to get himself in perspective. God saying, David, you you were a shepherd. You were out with sheep. I took you from the pasture and I made you a prince over my people. And not even using the word king here because God was the ultimate king and David was his prince. God saying, I've been with you the whole time and I am the one who has cut off your enemies and I don't need your help. God didn't need David's help and you know, he doesn't need our help either. Paul expressed this 2,000 years ago when he talked to the people of Greece Uh, He was walking around in Greece and he saw that they had altars that they had constructed to every imaginable God that they could come up with. 
And these altars were to their man-made gods. And their man-made gods needed them in a sense because of course they were man-made. And they even set up an altar and addressed it to the unknown God in case they had forgotten a God. Well, Paul said to them in Acts 17, verses 22 through 25, Acts 17, 22, it says, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, this place where they would discuss and dialogue about thought and reasoning, he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And Paul used that as a springboard to explain to them what God was really like. Paul said, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now he describes what the real God is like, the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, God doesn't need our help with anything. In fact, as he showed David, the same is true for us, and that is that we are fully dependent upon him for everything that we have. We see this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul talking to the church at Corinth, he asks them, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is, Nothing, right? And he says, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's instructing them, showing them, getting them to get themselves in perspective and see there's nothing that you have that you didn't receive from God. Where you were born, who your parents were, you received those from God your beauty, your intelligence, your aptitude, your passions, everything that you have is a gift from God. Everything, including the most important thing that you have if you're a Christian today, and that is your salvation. Your salvation is a gift from God. We see this truth in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Such a great passage. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one may boast. We need to keep ourselves in perspective. Everything that we have is a gift from God. And there's nothing that God quote unquote needs from us. You know, we gotta make sure that we get this right. We gotta make sure that our thinking is right about this. 
I mean, do you really believe that your salvation is by grace through faith? That it's not of your own doing? That it's a gift of God, not the result of works? Or do you think that you needed to do something in order to be saved? You need to contribute at least a little bit to your salvation. I mean, there's no way that God can do all of this for you. If we think that at all, we're really insulting the character of God. And we're making him out to be different than he actually is. Now imagine this scenario. Uh, I have a son and my son, when he was young, he loved to play baseball. Uh, we lived for a while in a modest condo that we rented in Laguna Niguel, and there were these beautiful homes around us, just fantastic, spectacular houses. Well, just imagine, this isn't a true story, but imagine that my son, in his passion for baseball, which was true, um, let's say that he constructed a way so that he could have batting practice by himself. And he put a screw into a baseball and then tied it with a rope to the branch of a tree out in the courtyard near where we lived. And let's say he would go out there in the afternoon with his baseball bat and hit that baseball that was attached to the branch of the tree and that ball would spin and he'd unwind it and hit that thing again and again to get his batting practice in. Well, what if one day when he was doing that, suddenly the ball broke loose from the rope and he hit it so hard, it just went soaring so far and then within a few seconds, you heard that sound, that the shattering of glass. You've probably heard it before. Well, let's say the sound was so loud, I came out and I saw him out in the courtyard there just sobbing and crying. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean for this to happen. The ball broke loose and it crashed the window I broke the window, I don't know what to do, and me being his mom, I went over there to take responsibility for it. So it hit the window of one of these beautiful homes. And I go over there and knock on the door and talk to the homeowner and say, hey, it was my son who hit the ball and shattered your window, and I need to pay for it. I need to make this right. And what if the homeowner said, that's fine, but that was a $3,800 window. It was a custom window, not just a square window like the one that you have, <laughs> but uh, it was fashioned to fit in our specific window arrangement that we have. And it had a special tint on it and all sorts of things, and it cost us $3,800. What if all I had was $4,000 to my name? But I still owe for the window, right? So I get my checkbook out and I write that check for $3,800 and shake hands with that homeowner. It's done. It's paid for. The window's paid off. 
So I go back home and my son is saying, sorry, it's like, it's okay. It's done. The window's been paid for. It's totally paid off. Well, let's say the next morning my son wakes up and just feels so bad about what happened that he decides he's going to go door to door after school and see if he can earn some extra money. And he goes door to door and asks people, can I do some chores for you? Can I take out your trash? And a few people say, sure, you can take out my trash. Here's a dollar, kid. And by the end of the day, he's collected about $7. Well, what if he were to take that $7 and go to the home where the window was broken and knock on the door and the homeowner answers the door and if he were to stand there with his little trembling hands and say, here's $7, I want to pay for that window that was broken. What if the homeowner said, okay, and took the money. That would be horrible, right? The window's already been paid off. Uh, the homeowner would be horrible in doing that. And when we try to pay off what Jesus already did for us, it's like we're saying God is horrible. Because although our sins have been paid off, we're trying to add to that payment. And that's not right. God wants us to get ourselves in perspective and remember everything that he has done for us. And that's why Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus paid for everything. If you're a Christian, he wrote the check for your entire debt. Everything you've ever done and everything you ever will do. We need to keep that perspective. This is all God's plan and not ours. David needed to remember that God didn't need his help in fact, everything that he had was a gift from God. And the same thing is true for you and me. Everything, including our most precious possession as Christians, our salvation, has been fully provided for us through Jesus. So after getting his perspective right, God continued he continued to speak to David through the prophet Nathan. In 2 Samuel 7, 9, the second part of the verse, it says, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them 
so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, And in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Wow. I mean, we're into some incredible declarations from God to David. Uh, Scholars know this as the Davidic covenant. It's the Davidic covenant. It's promises that God made to David that so much of biblical history hinges upon. A covenant is an agreement based upon an oath or a promise. And we could really spend an entire week in each one of these promises that God made to David. He promised him a great name. He said, not only did I take you from being a shepherd and make you a prince, but I'm going to give you a great name. He promised him land for God's people. Israel would have land. He promised him rest, rest for Israel, rest for the people of God, rest from their enemies. He promised him a house. David wanted to build God a house, but God said, I promise you a house. And this wasn't a physical house, but it was a dynasty. It was a household that would endure forever. He promised him offspring, a seed. One of his descendants would go on. And he promised him an eternal kingdom. Now, the first three of these promises, the great name, the land, and the rest for Israel, uh, they were really for the present time of David's life. But the four through six, the dynasty, the coming seed in the eternal kingdom, well, those were focusing on the master plan, the big picture, the future, what was yet to come. And those were initially beginning to be fulfilled in his son Solomon, but they were completely fulfilled in the Messiah, in Jesus. 
These things could only pertain to Jesus. Let's look back at verses 12 through 14. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This was much more than Solomon. We know that Jesus was raised up. We know that Jesus was the son of David. He was referred to as the son of David. He even called himself the son of David. Jesus built a house for God. We saw that in our daily Bible reading yesterday. In Hebrews 3, 3 and 4, Jesus is seated on a throne and Jesus has an eternal kingdom. Jesus has a reign and a rule that will go on forever and Jesus is the son of God. These incredible promises point to no one other than the Messiah, than Jesus. And that's why Paul, in writing to Timothy, uh, made this victorious declaration, uh, this confident statement of hope when he said in 2 Timothy 2.8, 2 Timothy 2.8, he said, remember Christ Jesus. Remember Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, the seed of David as preached in my gospel. Jesus was the fulfillment of these promises. God promised David the great name, land for Israel, rest from his enemies, and ultimately this enduring dynasty and an offspring who would have an eternal kingdom with no end. And this was through the coming Messiah who we know to be as Jesus. Wow. So God not only took David from being a shepherd and made him a prince, a king over his people. He was with him wherever he went. He cut off all of his enemies, but now he gave him this, this amazing promise, this package of promises. And what did David do? How did David respond when he heard these things? Well, let's look at 2 Samuel 18, 7, 18 through 24. 7, 18 through 24. Then King David, he went in and sat before Yahweh and said, who am I, O Lord Yahweh? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord Yahweh. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord Yahweh. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord Yahweh. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about this greatness to make your servant know it. 
Therefore you are great, O Lord Yahweh, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out people, driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you establish for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Yahweh, became their God. After David heard this, he got up and he went and he sat himself right beside the Ark of the Covenant. He went into that tent and he sat himself beside the Ark of God and he gave thanks to God for everything. And that's our second point. Give thanks to God for everything. David's perspective was right. And he began by saying to God there in verse 18 of 2 Samuel 7, who am I, O Lord Yahweh? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? David clearly realized that these amazing promises that were given to him were not a result of his righteousness or a response because of his righteousness, but they were because of God's sovereign and good and gracious choice. And that's why he said in verse 21, our memory verse, this is because of your promise and according to your own heart, your desire, your choice, you have brought about this greatness. You have done great things to make your servant, to make your servant know it. And all throughout this speech, uh, this prayer that David presents to Yahweh, he uses continually the terms Yahweh. He even uses Lord God in the Hebrew, uh, Adonai Yahweh. Uh, he keeps addressing everything to God. He directs his gratitude, his thanksgiving specifically to God. And he says in verse 19 here of 2 Samuel 7, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. A great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. Such an interesting phrase there, instruction for mankind. It's uh, in the Hebrew, Torah ha-adam. Torah being from Torah. Torah being compound. Uh, Torah of. Torah of Ha-Adam, Adam, 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 mankind. This is the Torah, the law, the instruction, the teaching for all of mankind. This is the charter for all mankind. David realizing here this wasn't just about him. Him saying, I benefit from this. All of Israel clearly benefits from this but all of mankind benefits from this. 
I benefit from this, you benefit from this, because this promise involves Jesus, the Messiah. And like David, when we benefit from things, we're called to take our thanksgiving and direct it specifically to God giving thanks to God. And how awesome that we're in the month of November, right? Because November is traditionally a month when we give thanks. It is a thankful month. We celebrate Thanksgiving in November. And many people commit in this month to being thankful. And that's great. That's wonderful. But I would ask you, to do what David did and what the scripture calls us to do and not only commit to being thankful, but commit to being thankful to God. Be thankful to God. Be thankful to Jesus. Uh, when you're thankful, add to God or to Jesus to your thanksgiving. Because, you know, the world considers it great and even cool to be thankful. The world would even say, that's great. That's a very thankful person. But when you add to God in there or to Jesus, it changes everything. You know, our non-believing friends and family can talk about how thankful they are. And should we get the opportunity this month and maybe get some alone time with them with uh, good conversation and they mention about how thankful they are, we could ask them, thankful to who? I've asked that before and I've gotten some interesting answers. Thankful to the universe, thankful to myself. Uh, who are they thankful to? We need to be specific and say we are thankful to God. That's why Colossians 3.17, Colossians 3.17 instructs us, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We need to give thanks to God the Father through Christ. Our thanksgiving needs to be to God. And you might say, well, David sure had a lot to be thankful for, but not me. Really? Do you have a Bible on your lap or on your phone? If you have access to the Word of God, you have a lot to be thankful for. There are people on this planet right now that don't have access to God's revealed word. We have a church. You can be thankful for this church. I mean, what an awesome thing to be able to openly and freely worship God in public. You have Christians around you. You can be thankful for these Christian sisters who want to encourage you in your walk with God and build into your life and befriend you. We have air to breathe, we have food to eat, we have clothes to wear, we have shoes on our feet, we have hot running water, we even have trash. You might think trash, 
I don't think I'm gonna be grateful to God for the trash. Well, you know what? One theologian wisely said, we should be thankful to God for the trash because the trash is a continual reminder of his provision for us. Every time we take out that bag of trash, it's a reminder to us, God has provided things for us so much that we've got things to take out to the dumpster. And of course, as Christians, if we had nothing, we can be thankful for our salvation. David had a lot to be thankful for, and we have a lot to be thankful for too. But you know, David went even further than just being thankful. And I really love these next verses. In 2 Samuel 7, 25 through 29, it's just so awesome to see his response here. In verse 25, he says, and now, so it's taking this turn. He says, and now, O Yahweh God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever saying, Yahweh of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord Yahweh, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord Yahweh, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is unbelievable. If we really look and see what's going on here, in verse 25, David boldly charges God to do as he said. David says, confirm the word that you have spoken and do as you have spoken. And this isn't irreverent at all. This is an amazing act of great faith. David hears the word of God and David says, I believe you and I expect you now to do as you have promised. Uh, there's shocking confidence there. And you might say, well, yeah, David had a direct revelation from God. David was hearing this through the prophet Nathan. David heard these things through the prophet Nathan and Believe me, just because people heard things through prophets didn't mean that they accepted the words, right? If you've been reading Jeremiah with us in the DBR, you'll see the ones who heard Jeremiah's message, God's message to them, told him basically to shut up. But David heard the words and he believed them and he said, I believe you and I expect you to do as you said. And we have God's recorded words to us in the scripture. The third point here is rely on God's promises. 
And I really should have made that point boldly rely on God's promises. As David said, I now have the courage to pray this prayer because he believed in the word of God and the words that God had communicated to him. And you know what's so interesting? If we remember when this whole thing began, what did David want to do? He wanted to build a house for God. And what did God say to him? No, no, uh, not right now and not you. Was his desire to build a house for God a good thing? Yes, it was a good thing. Uh, later, we see that uh, the prophet Haggai, uh, God uh, rebukes his people through the message that he gives to the prophet Haggai saying, you know what? You guys are more concerned with your own house than my house, and that's not a good thing. So David's desire was good, but it wasn't part of God's master plan. And you know what? David was fine with that. He wanted to do something for God and God said no. He wanted something that was a good thing and God said no, it's not a part of my master plan and David was content with that. He was completely confident because he put his focus on what God did promise him. What God did promise that he would do. And you know, we've got some amazing promises that God has made to us, don't we? I mean, let me just list some of these. And I would ask you right now to humor me and listen to this as if you were David and you were hearing these things for the very first time. Because thinking about this, you know, sometimes when we hear about the promises of God, we think, yeah, I know. Oh yeah, I've heard that. Mm-hmm, yeah, I'm good with that. But let's listen to these as if we were hearing them for the very first time. You know what God promises in 1 John 5, 14 and 15? 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, God promises to hear your prayers. If you're a Christian, God promises to hear your prayers. Now that's huge. That means the God of this universe who created the whole universe and everything in it, when you decide that you're gonna bow your head and your heart and talk to him, he humbles himself and he listens. That's huge right there. 1 John 1, 9, 1 John 1, 9 says that if you confess your sins to God, God promises to forgive you. How amazing is that? The debt that you've racked up in this life because of your sin, God says, I promise to let that go. That's huge. Psalm 86 verse five, Psalm 86 verse five, God promises to love you. How amazing is that? The creator of heaven and earth who needs nothing, he says, I promise 
to love you. In Psalm 57, 2, Psalm 57, 2, God says that he promises to make your life count. He promises to give your life a purpose. Romans 8, 29. Romans 8, 29, God says, I promise if you're a Christian, I promise to work in you and through you and make you like my son. God promises to do his work in us, to discipline us, to do whatever it takes to make us like Jesus. Romans 8.32, God promises to give us everything that we need. He says, I will give you everything that you need in this life. I've given you a Christ. I'm not gonna now deny you some crust. Everything that we need, he will give to us. John 14, one through three. In John 14, one through three, you know what Jesus said? Jesus said to us, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust in me. If you're a Christian, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in my father's house, there are many rooms. Jesus has made a place for us and it's waiting for us in heaven. That's a promise to us. Revelation 21 verse four. Revelation 21 verse four. Jesus says, the scripture says, that God will wipe away every single one of our tears. God will wipe away every single one of our tears. Romans 8.28, Romans 8.28, pretend you heard this for the very first time. God says, I promise to work all things, all things, every single thing in your life, if you are a Christian, together for your good and his glory. For your good and his glory. And then 2 Timothy 2.13. 2 Timothy 2.13. God promises that he will be faithful to you even when you're not. Can we stop and say with David, I'm gonna rely on these things. I'm gonna boldly rely on these things. And you know what, if we do, then what do all the little things matter, right? All the little things that we're worried about or anxious about or troubled about, even the big things, even the important things, you know, the things that are good things. What do they matter if they're not part of the master plan? If we keep our focus on the master plan, relying on God and relying on his promises, we can live boldly and courageously and confidently and fearlessly like David was able to do 
because he took God at his word and he realized that God has got all of this under control. Psalm 127.1. Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord, unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The word vain there, that shuv, it's like, uh, it's worthless. The passage is saying, unless God is the builder of the house, unless what's going on in our life is based on the foundation of God and built according to God's master plan, no matter how spectacular it is in the world, no matter how great those around us think that it is, the truth is, it's, it's a bust. It's going to implode and collapse. It is done in vanity. But we don't have to worry about that because we are with God. We're in Christ with God and he has got a master plan. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this amazing text of 2 Samuel and the opportunity for us to humble ourselves before you and to sit and learn from your word to us. God, I pray that you would help us to get ourselves in perspective, Lord that we would realize that you need nothing. You are the self-sufficient God. And that in fact, everything that we have, everything, every good thing is a gift from you. God, if there are any here who haven't truly put their trust in you and turned from their sins, I pray, God, that today would be the day of their salvation. And God, for those of us that have, I pray that we would be thankful to you. God, help us to make it our habit, our pattern, our course of life to direct all of our thanksgiving to you. Whenever we say we're thankful, that we would say we are thankful to God. We are thankful to Christ. We are thankful to Jesus, that we would target our gratitude to you, knowing that you are the one who gives us everything. And God, I just pray, God, please, grace us all with the ability to get better at boldly relying on what you've promised. God, I pray that we wouldn't yawn at these things that we wouldn't take these things for granted, but that no matter how difficult our circumstances get, that we would remember that the promises you've made to us in your master plan far exceed anything, anything that we're struggling with at this time. God, I pray for all of us that we could enter into this month of Thanksgiving, this season, this new holiday season with a new boldness, with a new confidence, with a new freedom to be able to walk courageously before you knowing that in Jesus you have said yes to all the promises you have made to us. We thank you so much for your son, 
and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.